Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. We continue in our sermon series from the Gospel of Mark. If you've missed a sermon, if you were on vacation last week for spring break, please go to the website, firstamarillo.org, and you can print off the sermon, listen to the sermon, watch the sermon, podcast the sermon, do whatever you need to do to catch up and be right with us as we're marching through the Gospel of Mark to arrive on Easter Sunday at the end. You'll turn this morning to, to Mark chapter 10 and also keep a place in Mark 14. We're going to go back and forth between Mark 10 and 14 and 15 just a little bit in a moment. So uh, keep your place in both chapters. A great heading to describe Mark 10, 32 through 45 is Jesus predicts his passion while the disciples grab for greatness. Jesus predicts his passion while the disciples grasp for greatness. Robert Fulgham, who authored All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, says that he placed a, a picture of a woman right beside his bathroom mirror. So that every morning when he shaves, he will look at this picture of the woman. She's small, wearing sandals, elderly, humpback, bent over, has an eastern blue garb with a, a headdress. She's surrounded in the picture by people dressed to the nines, tuxedos, and important-looking evening gowns, a regalia of royalty. The picture, Mother Teresa, servant to the poor, receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. There in the midst of all the important people is his servant to the poor. And Fulgham says he placed her picture right there on his bathroom mirror to remind him that more than any pope, more than any CEO of any Fortune 500 company, this woman had earned, had amassed great authority and she had amassed that authority through service, through serving the weakest and the poorest. Jesus, in our, our chapter this morning, turns the organizational chart upside down, turns it on its head. Notice what he says in 1043. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Anyone want to be great? then he or she must be a servant. And then he says in verse 45, we'll come back to it in a moment, that even he, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but rather to serve. And this service, moreover, finds its ultimate fulfillment and that he dies and pays the ransom for us. In some ways, and Mark 10, we've turned a corner, and now the gospel is coming to a climax. As Jesus makes not his first, not his second, but his third prediction of his passion. And the re reaction of the disciples are to, notice in verse 32, they are amazed and they're fearful. They are amazed at this word, and they are fearful at this word. Jesus tells in verse 32, this is what? is going to happen. Well, let's outline the passage this way. First of all, the journey to Jerusalem, verse 32 and 34. The journey to Jerusalem, 32 and 34. Let's look at 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, 
And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him, and three days after he will rise again. On two previous occasions, 831, 931, if you want to write these, it's kind of odd. 831 is the first prediction of the Passion. 931 is the second prediction of the Passion. And 1032 is now the third prediction of the Passion. And the first two, he had been pretty general. He told them that he was going to suffer, but he didn't give the clarity. He didn't give the details. But in this particular Passion prediction number three, he gives them a step-by-step roadmap of all that's going to happen to him. It's a series in the rest of the gospel of predictions and fulfillment. Well, let's look at them. First of all, 1033 says, the Son of Man will be delivered. The Son of Man will be delivered. Turn over to to chapter 14 and verse 43. We'll, We'll see this come to fulfillment. 14. 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. He, the Son of Man will be delivered. He's delivered in 1443. Notice he is to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, it says there in 1033. Well, that happens again in 1443. It says, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Well, there's another prediction. They will condemn him to death, 1033. They will condemn him to death, 1033. Look at 1464 to see what happens. And you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him of deserving death. 1464. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. 1033. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Look at 15.1. He's delivered over to the Gentiles. And early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to, to whom? To a Gentile. Delivered him uh, to Pilate. It's a roadmap. Prediction fulfillment. 1034, they will mock him. They will mock him. Look at 1520. And after they had mocked him. It's it's verbatim here. They will spit upon him, 1034. Look at 1465. In 1465, and they began to spit at him. And they will scourge him and kill him, 1034. And then in Mark 1515, and wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And having Jesus scourged, delivered him to be crucified. 1034, 
And after three days, he will rise again. Turn to 16.6. 16.6. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Now back to chapter 10. So what I want you to see is this third passion prediction isn't a generalization. It is a step-by-step roadmap. Jesus says, they'll mock me. Later, they mock him. Jesus says, they will spit upon me. Later, they spit upon him. They will hand him over the Gentiles. They hand him over the Gentiles. Piece by piece, prediction by prediction, everything that Jesus says absolutely comes to fruition. Now, I want you to notice they're going up to Jerusalem in 1032. And Jesus says, let us go up to Jerusalem. When one goes to the holy city now, we know the destination of the rabbi. One is marching up. And usually it is the Isaiah image of Isaiah 35, a victor coming to the city. But not in this case. It is a servant coming to die. Notice how Jesus walks in 1032. He walks on ahead of them. It's a reminder to the reader that whatever happens to the disciples of Jesus, Jesus is out front and ready to first receive it. It is also language after the resurrection. When Jesus predicts in 1428, after my resurrection, I will go before you into Galilee. Or in 167, the, the being dressed in white says, he will go on before you to Galilee. Everything that happens, Jesus has predicted. And Jesus, as they go up to Jerusalem, is out in front. That whatever might come their way, he will be the first to bear the burden. We have the images here of Isaiah's suffering servant mixed with some of the language of the Psalter of Psalms, and we think we're going to have a victory. What we end up as we mix Isaiah and Psalms is arrest and trial and crucifixion, and finally, resurrection. But nothing, none of it, takes Jesus by surprise. The second heading in this passage would be the granting of glory, 35 through 41. The granting of glory. In lead like Jesus, Ken Blanchard and Phil Hodges identify the characteristics of a self-important leader. A leader who's really important to himself or herself. Here's what they look like. First of all, they use a lot of first-person pronouns. I, me, my, mine. It's, it's all about I, me, my, and mine. And secondly, they're highly sensitive to any criticism, and they resist any opportunity to get them away from the microphone or the spotlight. They resist any opportunity to get them away from the microphone or the spotlight, and they are negative about all criticism. And thirdly, if there is any credit being doled out, they rush. No, they run to take all the credit. Well, the disciples here, especially James and John, have mistaken this going up to Jerusalem with Isaiah 35, and they think there's going to be a new kingdom and a new order of that kingdom. And so they've got a question for Jesus. They make a request of Jesus. They say, they're so bold, hey, when we get there and you win 
and we set up the new kingdom, could we ask you one little favor? Can my brother and I sit at the right and the left hand of your throne when you're reigning? That's, that's the spots we'd like. When, when you're doing the flow chart, we want to be just a notch below you, Rabbi. When we come in there, we want to be to the right and to the left. Now, when one is seated by a king, the right hand is the most important place. The left hand is the second most important place. So they are requesting, they've imagined this new kingdom set up, this board, and they're going to serve, and they want seats at the right and the left hand of Jesus. Our family endured a daily argument when my children were small. It didn't matter if we were leaving Walmart or worship. It always happened without fail. And inevitably, one of our girls would get a step in front of the others and shout out in a dash, I'm going to ride shotgun, and away she'd go. Now, I've yet to fully comprehend all the glory associated with sitting in the shotgun seat. But to my children, it was a big, big honor. And how did I know that? Because the sister relegated to the rear seat pouted as if she had been assigned to the pauper's place of all embarrassment. Much like my daughters making a mad dash for our Dodge Durango's front seat, James and John see Jerusalem in front of them, and they begin running, and they're shouting out to the other ten, I'm going to ride shotgun, we're going to ride shotgun, and away they go. Now, the other disciples are indignant about it. I don't think it's because they know the inappropriateness of the claim. I think it's because they themselves are about to ask, and James and John beat them to the question. Here's the oddity. After each of the passion predictions, 831, 931, 1032, every time Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, Every time, Jesus has to give them a, a lesson on humility and servanthood. Why, why, the first time he had to tell them, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily and come after me. In fact, this argument over who was the greatest, it started back in chapter 9. After Jesus made the second prediction of the crucifixion, they began arguing you remember he says to them, what were you talking about back there? They were arguing over who was the greatest. Perhaps the sons of Zebedee, James and John were, well, they're getting a little bit big for their britches because after all, every time Jesus called three to the side, they were on the short list. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead and everyone had to stay outside the room, remember it was Peter, James and John. They came into the room with the corpse as she arose. I remember at that mound of transfiguration from last Sunday when we have Moses and Elijah there, the glorification, the shining, shining of the Christ in his garments. Do you, do you remember in that scene of the glorification of heaven? It is Peter and James and John. And then as we go on, when we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the three that are supposed to be praying, though they sleep, are Peter, James, and John. And so they know, they figured out, they're pretty special to Jesus. And so they don't mind asking, when you set it up, will you give us 
the place. I love Jesus' response. You don't know what you're asking for. Verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These two images, they cannot be lost on the reader of Mark. They're images of death. The cup is always death, is it not? In Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but more so in the Garden Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup. Cup is death. It's crucifixion. Or baptism is death as well, is it not? Do we not read in Romans 6? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism unto death. So as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might also walk in newness of life. Oh, you want to be to my right, my left, Really? Can you drink that cup? Can you take that baptism? They're so flippant. Oh, yeah, we got it. We got it. We can drink the cup. We can take the baptism. No worries. What if James and John had known that his throne would be a cross? What if they had known that the one on the right and the left were also being crucified? Do you want this cup? Is this the baptism you want? If they really understood Jesus' definition of greatness, they wouldn't want to be that great, you see. We'll go a little lower in the pecking order, if you don't mind, and sit at the end of the table. For Jesus' throne will, will be wooden, but it will be a cross, and the one to the right and the one to the left will be crucified thieves. In Jesus' day, greatness was defined as possessing coercive power. Glad we've come a long way from that, aren't you? In Jesus' day, greatness was defined as coercive power. 2,000 years later, greatness is defined as having coercive power. Look what he says in verse 42. You know how it is with the Gentiles. They lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. When I look at the power structure of the world, Jesus says, when I look at the Gentiles, men of power and authority lord themselves over those beneath them. But if you want to enter into the kingdom economy, I'm going to turn it upside down. And greatness is service, and service is greatness, and the last shall be first. Do you understand how uncomfortable that makes all of us, this upside-down kingdom? If you want to be the great one, be the servant. 
Here's a, a third outline. The last one, ransom for many, 42 through 45. The ransom for many. He sets forth this image in 42 and following of, of true service. It's this idea of ransom, paying the ransom for many. Brenda Manning was waiting in an airport, a delayed flight, and to pass the time, he decided to get his dusty shoes shined. He sat down in one of those many places in the airport where people sit down to get their shoes shined, and he sat down, and the guy was shining his shoes. A frail elderly man was shining his shoes. You could tell he'd been doing this probably at this same spot, this same chair in this airport for decades, and it just came into to Manning's mind that after he's done my shoes, I'm going to pay him, tip him, and then I'm going to shine his shoes. And so after he'd finished shining his shoes, he paid him and he tipped him. He said, and now, good sir, I would like to shine your shoes. Have a seat. The elderly gentleman said, you're going to do what? He said, I, I want you to sit down. I want to shine your shoes. He said, now, how would you like them done? The elderly, thin man began to weep, and he said, I have shined countless shoes, but no one has ever shined my shoes. Of all the shoes he had shined for others, no one had ever shined his shoes. The kingdom is a kingdom of upside-down power. If you want to be great, you must be willing to be a servant. Fred Craddock says there's a difference between self-sacrificing servants and selfish servants. The self-sacrificers, he says it's interesting, they live in the same world that we live in. They drive the same kind of cars that we drive. They live in the, the same neighborhoods. They, they, it's, they're so much like us, but yet they're so different than us. They love, care, do, and give. They love, care, do, and give. And if we were this morning to call out their name and recite all the good things that they had done, they would be angry at us for calling attention to them. So what's the difference between them and us? Pastor Fred Craddock says, they attend to the Spirit of God within them. They nourish it. They feed it. They pray with it. They let it breathe. And the Christ in them is released and they become so much like the rabbi. It's a candid conversation as he closes it out here. Notice what he says at the end there. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Don't minimize the theological power of this passage. The, the idea of ransom was the idea of, of redeeming something or paying something out. It would be used when a slave was set free and someone put down the money to buy the freedom for that slave. If someone had gone to a pawn-type shop, you paid to redeem and get it free. It is the image that 
Christ dies for us, and in dying for us, he pays the ransom, and we are redeemed. We are set free because he is willing to pay the price. Whoever wishes to be great, whoever wants to be first, must be slave of all. Gordon McDonald says something I don't like, but I've often find I, I don't like things that are true. He says, you can tell whether or not you're becoming a servant in Christ by how you act when someone treats you like one. If you want to know whether you have a, a servant's heart or spirit, how do you act when someone talks down to you? And treats you like one. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve. And we're getting close in our march through Mark to his paying the ransom that we too are set free. Let us pray. Oh God, we come this morning, and what a powerful word. Every structure of this world is built differently than God's economy. Oh God, you turn our lives upside down. You, you turn our power structures upside down. You call the weak strong, the strong weak, the servant great, and the man in authority is placed at the bottom. And we say, it can't work that way. And Jesus says, oh, yeah? And he takes his throne on the cross and says, it can and it will. Look at me. Oh, God, for those of us who struggle with power and power structures and influence, Call us to servanthood. For those who are the ones who serve and do and go and give, may they continue as models for those of us who struggle. Maybe there's one today who would say, today is my day to follow the servant king, the one who paid my ransom, who died my place. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.